Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today as this is our annual Halloween special where we cover our entire viewing schedule for October. I can see that Erica is definitely in the spirit. She already has her costume on, keeping it cinematic, I see. Sexy Eric von Stroheim is definitely an interesting choice. It was that or Kathleen Turner Overdrive. You should win a prize for the most intriguing use of a monocle, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to get spooky? I sure am. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. And this is a special episode today, capping our annual Halloween celebration and running down the list of our 31 days of horror viewing schedule this year. We are at episode 116 today. Welcome to the Magic Jack-O-Lantern of 2019. So what was the theme this year? Well, with the exception of our regular episodes and the movie nights that we host, the theme this year was a chronological exploration of some of the most prominent horror films of Hollywood's, mostly, golden age. From the bedrock of the Universal Monster Pantheon all the way to a couple of entries from Poverty Row Studios as the golden age was beginning to fade in the mid-40s. We each chose a dozen or so, and we start with Erica's first selection. What are we kicking off with? I was excited to start this month with something I'd heard about but never seen before, and I don't know about you, but I wasn't sure how I would feel watching it almost a 100 years after it came out. And that is The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923, directed by Wallace Worsley, with Lon Chaney, Patsy Ruth Miller, Norman Carey, and Ernest Torrance. In 15th century Paris, a freakish hunchback falls in love with the Gypsy Queen. Now, overall, I thought this was amazing set building, I think, more than anything else. It was an enjoyable experience, and it feels and looks like an epic. And I was most struck by that concept of a person who is treated like a creature rather than a human. Is this horror only because he's considered a grotesque? Because otherwise it's only about social hierarchies and they're all monstrous. There's never a moment in this where I am not thinking about man's inhumanity to man. And I think this is something that we'll see in our next choice too. I'm not 100% sure of whom they want us to find revulsion in. I think they wanted to have it both ways. And ultimately, I think I don't side with anybody in this particular case. Nobody is particularly lovable. No, definitely not. And you're right. Technically, it has some impressive elements, these extravagant sets, Cheney's nimble physical performance. But this film, for me, is notable mostly because of its historical significance, don't you think? I'm with you. It's too undisciplined for me otherwise, and not in a good way, not in the best way. Well, keeping it in the silent era, my first choice was The Phantom of the Opera from 1925, and that's directed by Rupert Julian and again starring Lon Chaney, this time with Mary Philbin and Norman Carey. It's based on Gaston LaRue's novel and is about a disfigured phantom who haunts the Paris Opera House causing murder and mayhem in an attempt to make the woman he loves a star. This was also a first watch for me. It's interesting to me that both of these Cheney choices are built on celebrated novels. So many of these major horror touchstones have the benefit of added gravitas from their literary origins. 
But these first two in particular are prestige pictures, and a lot seems to have changed from Hunchback to Phantom. Do you chalk this up to technological advances, directorial skills, something else in those intervening years? I think all of those things, and we'll continue to see those leaps forward in just a few years. I think you can also see the Melies influence in this one. Other things that stand out to me, I like the presentation of the underbelly of the Paris Opera House. It's not too much. It gives you a good idea of the scope without being overwrought. I like how the Phantom makes grand gestures, but Cheney is mostly stately here. Unlike that Harpo Marx extreme of Quasimodo, I prefer this approach, obviously. His entrance as the Red Death is incredible. That costume is one of the greatest in horror cinema history. And there's a little more earned pathos here, but still no purity of motive. Definitely. There's a whole lot of stalking thrown in. There's that master and slave dynamic, and it seems to fall into that whole see what you made me do because I love you genre of just creeps. Yeah, the Phantom is still an incel monster who's either <laughs> menacing innocent women or going up against an angry mob that he probably thinks doesn't understand him. What's your next choice? Now, this one feels almost futuristic, and we're talking about just seven years, and that is Freaks from 1932, directed by Todd Browning, with Harry and Daisy Earls, Layla Hyams, Olga Baklanova, and Henry Victor. A circus's beautiful trapeze artist agrees to marry the leader of the sideshow performers, but his deformed friends discover she is only marrying him for his money. The carnival barker tells us at the beginning, but for the accident of birth. And definitely, the big people, quote-unquote, in this are by and large scumbags. And this feels like every bully robbing people of their humanity who just want to be allowed to live and exist. Now, this feels so futuristic with this moving camera, but the experience of watching this still makes my neck hurt. I'm just so stressed and uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a measure of what a difference just a year can make when you look at Browning's Dracula from 1931 and how undynamic and static a film that is. And then all of a sudden you have this whirlwind of activity. It's incredible. And after a few years of the horror genre, cherry-picking classic literature like that, Todd Browning comes along and picks a meaner, darker story and then ruins the party for everyone. And I say that with tongue firmly in cheek because I love this movie. But the controversy this generated brought censors and other hand-ringers sniffing around. Did you ever go to sideshows? Jim Rose even when it was popular in the 90s? I didn't. When I was very young at the State Fair, I saw an old-school sideshow, and the electrified man is the thing that I remember the most. Now, this has to be considered, or at least close to, the Rosetta Stone of exploitation films. Is it any more exploitive, though, than something like The Wizard of Oz? Because I feel their humanity, every single performer of a different size or ability. Yeah, at least in this case, they have agency, they exact their revenge. And one thing I also note here, a traveling circus seems always like it's a psychosexual madhouse. It does. But back to what you were saying, these quote normal unquote people are detestable. And this film is just an exercise in being patient until they get theirs. And I really do feel Browning's affection for these characters. When it's just them living their lives with no interference, it's wonderful. They have adventure, they have romance, they enjoy the pleasures of simple conversation and shared meals just like you do. They're simultaneously unique 
because they have uncommon abilities. And then they're also average because they don't want anything different from their lives than any of us do. And I think Browning is very sympathetic to that. Do you see the ending as them being portrayed as creatures rather than humans? No, absolutely not. And I know when I look at this list, we pick these older films for comfort sometimes, but this is not a comforting film. It does have one of the scariest, most grim finales in Golden Age Horror, but I always like this, even though I know we're not supposed to anymore. Well, I love your next choice, any era, any decade. Even the Marlon Brando Val Kilmer one? Are we talking about? No, just this specific movie. Well, this choice is Island of Lost Souls from 1932, and that's directed by Earl C. Kenton and starring Charles Lawton, Richard Arlen, Layla Hyams, whom we just saw in Freaks, and the first appearance of Bela Lugosi on our list, and then Kathleen Burke as Lota, the Panther Woman. To me, this centers around the genius of Charles Lawton. Absolutely. Well, two things. The genius of Charles Lawton and the genius of the H.G. Wells source novel itself. And this is about an obsessed scientist who is secretly conducting surgical experiments on animals, again, quote-unquote, on a remote island. And I feel touchstones again already. This remote island setting gives off a little King Kong vibe in the beginning. And I'm enjoying the way the programming that we've done already is lining up a little bit. We have some interesting mini themes in these pairings of films. In the case of this and Freaks, we have the normal humans getting their just desserts at the hands of a faction that they consider less than human. There's unrelenting cruelty again. But to go back to Charles Lawton, he looks like a creepy doll like an overgrown little boy he's a jaunty little figure don't you think oh it's astounding to watch someone whose every syllable seems to be beyond what every other actor is doing and his manner is just so lascivious the way he lounges inappropriately on the furniture the way the words roll around in his mouth the way he relishes instilling fear to the point that it's almost a fetish he's a peeper too on top of all of that Murder boners. Yeah, exactly. It's like Herzog's description of the jungle. The night is filled with whales. Everything seems to be in pain. And this, I think, is the first instance where this pops up, but it keeps popping up. How deeply entrenched in us is this desire to be God, Frankenstein, etc.? And that has echoes all the way up into the modern day. This time, the thing I thought, it occurred to me for the first time during this viewing, as this begins to unravel at the end how much this reminds me of Jonestown when Senator Ryan showed up. So it's like you say, no matter the year that we watch it, from the year that was made up to today, it resonates still. Stepping out of our Golden Age chronology for a second, the next thing we have on the list is Ginger Snaps from 2000, directed by John Fawcett and starring Emily Perkins, Catherine Isabel, and Mimi Rogers. It's about two outcast sisters living in the suburbs, one of whom is bitten by and becomes a werewolf. Now, this was the first of our October movie nights, and this was my choice of the three that we did. How did you decide on, and what was the theme for us for this year? I had this idea of movies with women who were neither the victim nor the perpetrator, and that ended up being more difficult than I first thought to find Good titles that not everyone knew or had seen many times. At this point, I'm not sure what first drove that idea. I must have been tired of something. I must have been watching too much of something. 
And this was a first viewing for Ginger Snaps, and I liked it a lot, especially the actress who plays Ginger and her performance tinged with humanity and realness, even as she's becoming more monstrous. Interesting, because what you were shooting for with that, it made me think of the younger sister, Bridget, and the transformation that she has to go through. It's not as obvious. She's not the monster. It's not so highly symbolic. But it isn't just the typical final girl running from the monster. The werewolf stuff is fun, and it is a brilliant treatment, I think, to tie it to female puberty and the lunar cycle. It seems so obvious that you wonder how it wasn't given this treatment before. Do you think people are afraid of this subject? I think Ginger puts it really well. She says every girl has to be a slut or a virgin or a tease or a bitch. And they don't fall into those categories. No. And it also has to be at least among the most prominent displays of menstrual blood in any film that's ever been made. When you watch it, you have to think, I have never seen this before. Well, I come back to Bridget, though, because I feel like she is the warrior here because she has to study this problem, then stand and fight. She just can't run. It's her sister. So even though that obvious physical transformation doesn't happen to her, she's the one that becomes a woman in the end because she has gone through this trauma and prevailed. So my choice fit your theme okay, you think? I think so. I really enjoyed it. I can't say enough about how great Mimi Rogers is. Well, back to our list. What do you have next? We're going back to 1932. And that is Murders in the Rue Morgue, directed by Robert Flory with Bela Lugosi, Leon Ames, Sidney Fox, and Burt Roach. Lugosi is a mad scientist seeking to mingle human blood with that of an ape. Now, it's inspired by the story, really, <laughs> just like another one in our list, in title more than anything yeah. else. Now, even with Carl Freund producing and John Huston even contributing to the script, I wish I liked this more. It does end up being my favorite Lugosi role. Maybe it's that unibrow. Visually, it's great. There's awesome sets, paintings, but I think it comes down to Americans pretending to be Europeans and it doesn't feel quite believable. Plus, it's a dopey romantic coupling that I just don't enjoy. I want them out. We're going to see quite a bit of that in these formulas as well. We do. And I think the last thing that struck me is that this film comes less than a decade after the Scopes trial, and it deals strikingly with the question of evolution and the intelligence level of primates. Yeah, I thought you might like this one more than you ended up doing because this carnival setting is cool and this translating what the ape is saying for the crowd is a bit of sideshow brilliance, I feel like. It's one of my favorite Lugosi performances as well. I know that Dracula is obviously the iconic role, but again, just a year later, in this, he is so much more dynamic and interesting and less stiff. He gets a lot more to do, and this carnival barker element to his character shows off how charismatic he could be. Yeah, the romance can go out the window. If the film could just focus on him, his abominable experiments, and the fog and the gas lamps, then this could be an all-time classic. Because the atmosphere is fantastic. The shadows, the mad scientist equipment, great matte paintings and the way they are incorporated with the sets, it all makes for excellent horror mise-en-scene. It just looks great. And there's some really great pre-code imagery here too, including the torture of one of Lugosi's victims, and especially the way that they unceremoniously dispose of her body, dumping her through a trapdoor in the floor into the river like she's trash. It is very blunt. And also, right up your alley, we have our second 
gorilla gonna kill you in a row and he's made to pay for these crimes so i feel terrible for him is that what soured yeah. you on it a little bit <laughs> if it could just be all lugosi and the ape that would be great well number seven on the list is actually a regular episode it was your choice for the babadook from 2014 if you want to hear what we thought about that you can listen to us discuss it at length in that episode episode 114 and then back to your regular choice with a bona fide classic Yes, including a name you just mentioned at the helm this time. It's The Mummy from 1932, directed by Carl Freund and starring Boris Karloff and Zita Johan. And it also has David Manners, snooze, but Edward Van Sloan. So it has the most boring and most exciting parts of Dracula in it all at once. Edward Van Sloan rules so much in these early universal horror films. He is just the best. This movie, it's about the ancient Egyptian mummy Imhotep, who is discovered by a team of British archaeologists and brought back to life by the Scroll of Thoth. By the way, I got to see this on the big screen in Baltimore with King Kong on a double oh, bill. So a... much fun. I really love, I should mention right here since I'm thinking about it, the universal horror Swan Lake connection, how often they use that music for the introduction to these films. Now, after so many years, it just conjures up such fun memories in my head. It puts me right in the mood for classic monsters, but it's probably also ruined the ballet for me. I think you probably like the very beginning the most with that great miniature in oh, the intro. I love the miniatures. But the Swan Lake thing, if they do eventually come up with a revamped Universal Monster Universe, which I hope they don't do, hope they don't complete this terrible idea. Absolutely. If they don't use Swan Lake for that, then they are fools. It's amazing, again, that in less than 10 years from where we started, we've got so many advances in makeup and camera work. The various angles used within the same scene to capture action are great here. I also think that this is the most legitimately romantic of all the Universal Monsters, wouldn't you say? Because I know it's still he's coming back for her, but at least in this case, something in her blood is responding to his call. It's not just stalking like we've seen previous to this. Him crossing oceans of time. Yeah. It's also my favorite universal monster, I think, or at least neck and neck with the creature from the Black Lagoon, and it is absolutely my favorite makeup in the Pantheon. I think this one and the Wolfman are the ones I've watched most in the universal main Pantheon. And they get their money's worth out of that makeup, too, because we get to see the monster much earlier and in much more detail than we usually do in any of these. I think the reason that the mummy is my favorite overall is how deliberate and still he is, both as the mummy and his alter ego, Ardath Bey. When I was a kid, the mummy scared me the most because he was so slow and he could still somehow get you. And Ardath Bey, he radiates that same power and menace and he barely moves. What do you have next? Well, speaking of something that barely moves, I've got <laughs> The Secret of the Blue Room from 1933. Are you about to talk trash about one of my favorites? I am, and I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> now, this was directed by Kurt Newman with Lionel Atwill, Gloria Stewart, Paul Lucas, and Edward Arnold. It takes place 20 years after three murders occur in this castle's blue room, and we've got three men vying to marry a beautiful girl who decide to spend a night in the room to prove their bravery. Now, even though this has my favorites in it, that's Lionel Atwell, Paul Lucas, and Edward Arnold, who I will watch in anything ever. Those are some heavy hitter character actors. So wonderful. And it's a locked room mystery. It still kind of feels like a dud, and I will explain why. 
hold your comments. Now, I realize I have mostly not enjoyed Gloria Stewart in anything. Is it because she has no personality or she's given roles that have no personality? Chicken or the egg? I don't feel that at all. I think she had a really good run in Universal Horror from 1932 to 1933, especially because you've got The Old Dark House and then this, which is probably the least of those, and then The Invisible Man. And she's the least interesting person in all of them. Well, up against Karloff and Charles Lawton. Yes, but (laughs) she just doesn't do it for me. And I still feel cheated out of not having Lionel Atwell as the villain. So it's not terrible, it's fun, but it's not my favorite. And I'm going to talk some more trash about Gloria Stewart later. (laughs) What did you think? Well, I liked it. It's fun for me. All of these old dark house movies, it's one of my favorite, favorite subgenres ever. And there are neat little things that pop out of this that you don't see in the others. For instance, every time they say goodnight, Irene, which is her character's name, I can only think of Lead Belly and that song by that name. (laughs) And it turns out that he wrote that song in 1933 as well. Oh. So did he see this movie and hear them say that so often that he then went and wrote this song? I don't think so. We'll never know. But it's kind of a fun little coincidence. Other little things about it. Is there ever a butler that's not up to at least something? And then one thing that I wish is during the second night when Frank is in the blue room playing the piano at one o'clock, the appointed hour, that the music would just stop instead of there being a gunshot to indicate that something had happened. I really wanted that to be the thing that sent the chill into your blood. I wanted it to turn out that Gloria Stewart's Irene was the perpetrator of all of this, that she was going mad and she was being protected, but she was killing off all these suitors because she didn't want to get married. That would be a pretty interesting twist uh-huh. and would make her much more interesting for it you. It would. But anyway, I watched these old Dark House movies on a loop. I love the thunder and the lightning and the secret passageways. And another thing that sticks out about this, can you ever remember having seen Edward Arnold fire a gun in anything, much less at someone? Nothing's coming to mind. I don't remember that very dark scene and you can't take it with you. (laughs) He always seems so cheerful and avuncular, or at least if he's an evil businessman, he's not pistol-whipping guys or just firing shots off randomly. Let's his henchmen do it. Well, I'm going to step away from the old dark house subgenre here for a second and go back to Egypt for my next choice, at least on a tangent, and that's The Ghoul from 1933, directed by T. Hayes Hunter. Again, look at this cast. You've got Karloff the Uncanny, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Ernest Thesiger reunited for Karloff in the second of three great films that they would make together. And Ralph Richardson in his film debut. Incredible. It's about an Egyptologist that returns from the dead to have his revenge on those who have betrayed his trust and violated his tomb. He's an old dying man in this, and I'm not entirely clear why coming back to life gives him super strength, but it does. This is sort of the UK's response to the mummy. It's cashing in on that Egyptology craze during the golden age of archaeology in the 20s and 30s. And I think this is similar to Murders in the Rue Morgue for me in that it has tons of atmosphere, but maybe not quite enough story. It's also got a dopey love triangle in it. Although I do like this one slightly better than Murders in the Rue Morgue. I love that the central question in this comes down to whether the supernatural, whether these old gods actually exist, and whether the gods that he's been praying to will save him in the end. Yeah, I feel like it's two-thirds there. This Egyptology beyond the grave stuff is really fun. 
Then there's a large part of it that is all these crisscrossing lines of skullduggery that plays more like a fog-shrouded espionage thriller. But as often happens, like you mentioned, the comic relief and the juvenile leads let it down a little bit. I do give credit in this case, though. There is an undertone of kinky sex in the comic relief that sets it apart from its contemporaries. Next up, you've got a pretty big one. That's The Invisible Man from 1933. Is this your favorite Universal monster? Almost. I'll get to that one later. You'd think it would be mine, what with his lust for power and his barely controlled rage all the time. Everyone deserves the fate coming to them, he says, during his relatively short reign of terror, which also has a massive body count. Over a hundred. And that's The Invisible Man, played by Claude Rains. This film was directed by James Whale. Who I love. Yes. Also has Gloria Stewart and Henry Travers, whom I love. Claude Rains is this scientist finding a way of becoming invisible, but in doing so, he becomes murderously insane. So I'm thinking again about Gloria Stewart. She doesn't seem to have been given great characters. And I'm thinking about Miriam Hopkins in mm. that same question. Somebody who seemed to be able to make the most of spunkiness. And that I think is because it was in her and I don't see the same thing in Gloria Stewart. Now, I've seen this one many, many times. And I think a big part of that is that it does have some excellent black humor. And then Claude Rain's central performance, really playing this character as going insane. I believe it. Yeah, there is so much that I love about this. I like the atmosphere of the opening in this pub. It's the perfect backdrop for him to walk in and throw a bucket of cold water on everything with his entrance. And you can feel that it's winter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's relatable that he just wants to find a way back. He's not completely lost at the beginning, but that deteriorates quickly. I think the blood on the innkeeper's head when he throws him down the stairs is the first blood that we've seen in any of these. These were not gory pictures. And then also with just a few simple tricks, they do a pretty good job of getting you to suspend your disbelief with the invisibility angle for everything. This was cutting edge technology. I think the effects look great. Still. And uh, James Whale, he lets Uno O'Connor off the leash a little bit here, huh? She and Kathleen Harrison from The Ghoul Before, some of my least favorite, even though I think in real life they were awesome. One of the things I'm wondering that I wanted to ask you about, when they send out that warning over the radio, Invisible Man on the Loose, <laughs> on a murderous rampage, if you hear that today, you get in the car, 2019, you turn on the radio, NPR says, Invisible Man on the Loose, everybody lock your doors, how would you react to that? Well... Luckily for me, I was listening to Bobby Brown in the car, so I would probably miss the warning, but, oh, I would start jumping around or jump out of the car or look around or wonder, oh, is the Invisible Man going to get me? Also, shout out to how much he runs around completely nude all the time. Yeah. The next thing on the list is another one of our movie nights, and this time around it was Haosu from 1977, and this one is always a fun one to watch with a group of friends, and we were lucky this time to have a couple of attendees that hadn't seen it before. I love reliving that first-time viewing experience, even if now it's only vicariously through people like this. And luckily, these folks were totally receptive to its bonkersness. <laughs> and also, I was glad to see everyone loves the character of Kung Fu, just like me. Yeah, we had a really fun discussion afterward that veered between making total sense and realizing there may be no way to make sense out of this. And I had never known this until you pointed it out this time, that it was intended to be Toho Studios' response to Jaws. That this was their attempt at a blockbuster 
with the kind of universal appeal that would make it an evergreen classic. Yeah, a big summer movie to delight <laughs> audiences. And it delights me. Well, they certainly achieved something. Though I don't know that blockbuster is how I would describe it, but on the cult film level, definitely. And I think your next choice on the list is definitely more of an underground one. Yeah, it's probably among the least seen of all of the movies on our list this year. And this one is Terror Aboard from 1933. And that's directed by Paul Sloan, starring John Halliday, Charlie Ruggles, Shirley Gray, Neil Hamilton, and Stanley Fields. And it's about a luxury liner that is found adrift on the high seas with everyone on board dead or missing. Now, how many times would you guess that Stanley Fields played a gruff ship's captain? Five million. He did it eight times, literally. Believable. And a first mate once. So he was really typecast, but he did such a great job with this kind of role. I love the atmosphere on a budget on this one. At one point, it's so foggy out on the ocean that the interior of the cabin on the bridge is full of fog somehow, too. I think that this has a truly interesting central character, a really languid, urbane sociopath. Not something we see often. Or at least not back then, definitely. And maybe not this well portrayed still. Everything about this is interesting to me. The derelict ship is simply but creepily staged. There's that dangling lifeboat first that gives you a clue that something's wrong. A walk-in freezer that's frosted over. And we quickly find that the ship is littered with corpses and then it's on fire. This is our first instance, I think, of serious blood. And it's appropriate for what has to be one of the first proto-body count movies. We have Charlie Ruggles introduced here. Is this a more tolerable version of comic relief for you than we've seen so oh, far? Just barely? barely. The variety of kills kind of takes away from how disappointing the comic relief is in these instances because this had to be shocking to audiences in 1933. He shoots one. He stabs one. He gets one to stab another. He freezes one. He throws one overboard. He coaxes one to hang himself. The manipulation angle of this alone sets it apart from any of those horror films of the era. Because how often do you see the villain in a body count movie, then or now, tricking or cajoling the people on his list into murder or suicide? It's definitely interesting both as an artifact and a fun pre-code horror film. Well, get ready for more insane brutality, more urbanity, and more Charlie Ruggles, and that's Murders in the Zoo from 1933, directed by Edward Sutherland. Also with Lionel Atwell again, Gail Patrick, Randolph Scott, and Kathleen Burke back from Island of Lost Souls. A zoologist is pathologically jealous of his beautiful but unfaithful wife and will stop at nothing to keep her. Until he straight up throws her to the gators about halfway through. I unabashedly love Lionel Atwell. I wish he was in every single movie. I'm glad we see him several times on this list. Now, by the way, I finally pieced together in this viewing, I've probably seen this five times at this point, that it's actually Charlie Ruggles who directly causes the death of the wife by something that he lets slip. Comic relief, eh? Yeah, not so much. I've also got a fun fact for you. What's that? In 1942, Lionel Atwell was indicted for perjury, and this was related to an alleged occurrence of a sex orgy at his home. Well, too bad he felt it necessary to lie about it. Fly that freak flag, Lionel. No and kidding, don't bud. invite Charlie Ruggles. <laughs> yeah, he's going to give everything away. Well, this one is the least of the batch for me so far. I think it's one of your favorites. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I think my lack of enthusiasm about it 
is the fact that the first and the last scenes with Lionel Atwill are so intense and interesting that the rest of the film can't keep pace. It's a long slog for me sometimes between that killer beginning and that great finale. And also, it's Gail Patrick and Randolph Scott who do not light up the screen, in my opinion. Yeah, they're not my favorites in this, although I do love to see Kathleen Burke from Island of Lost Souls again. I wish she had done more. She retired at age 25, just five years after this. Sadly, she never really found success, which is a shame, because I think she does a fine job with what she's given, and she had such a unique look that should have made her a star. At the very least, she does a great job of being thrown into the alligator pit. And with your next choice, we're about to see Randolph Scott again. He's not the one I would highlight in this case. <laughs> My next choice here was Supernatural from 1933, and that was directed by Victor Halperin and starring Carol Lombard, Vivian Osborne, and also Randolph Scott. Carol Lombard's one of your favorites of Absolutely. all time. That little scar on her cheek, that is the epitome of an imperfection revealing perfection to me in a human face. Do you like her as much in a more serious role? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I like to watch her anytime. And I think she's great in this. I have a super fun time with this one. It's about a serial murderess who is executed and then returns to life in the body of a young woman to exact revenge on the lover that betrayed her. Our serial murderess, Ruth Rogen, even has these awesome little devil curls in her hairstyle. And did you know... That our bodies give off ultraviolet rays when we die? I didn't. <laughs> That's the scientist played by H.B. Warner, whom I've always loved, telling us that tidbit of info. This is the one on the list that was among the first of our new discoveries this year. The opening credits are great. It's the epitome of a dark and stormy night, windswept seas, complete with admonishment from various religious and philosophical texts. There are a couple of great newspaper zoom-ins, which I love. Maybe my favorite one of all time. Nod to Lionel Atwell on this one. Telling us that our black widow killed her three lovers after a, quote, riotous orgy, unquote, <laughs> on the front page of the paper. Yeah. At her swanky uptown digs. And then there's also an obituary for Lombard's character's brother informing us that his death would be keenly felt in aviation and polo circles. There's great tone and darkness here. Yeah, and it has some of that great crackpot science that you mentioned, practiced by a doctor whose creepiness levels don't seem to be adequately registering with everyone. There are also some classic seance tricks on display that are fun, and this is one of the earliest films about possession that I can think of. Can you think of one that predates this? No, not me. And my favorite thing about it is just that it demonstrates that we haven't seen it all. And even in a genre and time period that we are well acquainted with, there are still fun discoveries to be made. What do you have next? This is one that I discovered through you, so thank you. And that's The Black Cat from 1934, directed by the great Edgar G. Ulmer, with Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, David Manners again, Snooze, and Julie Bishop. It was again suggested by the Edgar Allan Poe story, but really only in title, because get this. American honeymooners in Hungary become trapped in the home of a Satan-worshipping priest. That young honeymooning couple, they're terrible, I hate them, don't think about them. <laughs> but there is great creepiness and darkness at the center. And it's a new feeling in this that, for the first time, at least in this list, Bela Lugosi is the good guy. And Boris Karloff is pure, modern, European evil. I mean, he's a war criminal who has built a house over a graveyard. 
And it's not just the first that Bela Lugosi is the good guy. This is the first time that we have literally the two titans of horror of the era squaring off. And we should temper that Lugosi is a good guy thing because still, these universal villains and good guys are a bunch of creeps. Lugosi meets a young couple on the train and it's not five minutes before they've fallen asleep and he's stroking her hair. Oh yeah, I forgot about that part. Okay, he's not as complicit as Karloff is. Yeah, there are a lot of high points here. The visuals are super striking again and you have this ultra-modern house built on the remains of a fortress and cemetery. The women that Karloff has suspended in these glass cases, it's such a nice touch that their feet aren't touching the bottom of the case as if they're floating. It's somehow much more unsettling that it's way. It's incredible to see it the first time. I really do think, though, that Lugosi steals the show with this one, which is an impressive feat when you're going up against Boris Karloff. The comic relief with the bicycling constables and their civic pride actually worked for me this time. This was the first <laughs> yeah. time I thought, that's actually fun. Yeah. It has a satanic ritual that all the local bigwigs have come out for. And then there's this intense finale with some serious homoerotic overtones in which Karloff is bound and has his clothes ripped off so Lugosi can get up close and skin him alive. It is very personal. And Lugosi walks away with Karloff's blood all over his nice white tuxedo shirt. I love these pre-code entries for stuff like this. I think we're going to get some other really interesting undertones in our next couple of films. Yeah, I love when doing this, that these little mini arcs and these things reveal themselves to us that we definitely did not intentionally program for, but here they are all together in a group. Because my next choice is Werewolf of London from 1935, and that's directed by Stuart Walker and starring Henry Hull, Warner Oland, Valerie Hobson, and one of your favorites, Spring Byington. It's about a botanist who has traveled to Tibet in search of a rare flower and is attacked by a werewolf while collecting the plant. And this is the first major werewolf film. This predates Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman by six years. Now, I first saw this when I was at my cousin's house when I was about eight years old, and I can tell you that then I did not catch the subtext that I am catching now. If the black cat was introducing these homoerotic overtones, then this brings them front and center. The relationship between Henry Hull and Warner Oland leaves absolutely no room for reading between the lines. We met once before in the dark. This is a man who cannot be himself, admit to his underlying nature, or safely give vent to his true feelings. And there are all these machinations to kill that shitty wife of his, and it does seem like killing the thing that's in my way. I love the first walking transformation into the wolf. That's super cool. And by the way, I didn't know Warner Olin was Swedish, did you? No, I didn't. I also love when they have the font do things for the story, like the W looking like it's fur. I think that's super cool. And there's an interesting bit about respecting the superstitions of others, which feels ahead of its time. Well, John Colton, the primary screenwriter for this, was gay. And I wish I could go back and pick his brain now after seeing this about what he felt about himself, about society, if he felt like a monster, because this screenplay has a lot going on. I also like the additions to werewolf lore that this contributes to and the simplified makeup. Are the Snoop sisters here your favorite bit of comic relief so far? That is again some comic relief that actually seems to work. Also, neatly, I think, so far, he is the first monster we have that delivers a kind of dying soliloquy. Very dramatic. What about your next choice? 
I'm going to continue with the drama with Dracula's Daughter from 1936, directed by Lambert Hillier with Otto Kruger, Gloria Holden, Marguerite Churchill, and Edward Van Sloan again. A Hungarian countess seeks the aid of a noted psychiatrist, hoping to free herself from her family curse. Now, I like Van Sloan as Van Helsing here because he does look like an actual professor, so it seems to feel more real from the start. Now, this is set up essentially to be a direct sequel, essentially, to Lugosi's Dracula. It picks up right at the end. Dare we say this is better in some ways? There is a lot to like here, I think. And that centers around Gloria Holden for me. She can take this into almost Norma Desmond territory because there's a lot of staring. But she always brings it back to this place of desperation and doom. She has kind of a light touch, which I was surprised about. Because in reality, she is begging for help here, and I feel that. Otto Kruger doesn't do it for me, and it seems like an afterthought that she is asking him to remain with her. Because he's so boring when she has the pick of these other people that she can enthrall. And there is an undertone here. Yeah, this is our third film in a row where we have distinctly coded LGBTQ material with Countess Zaleska luring a young woman to her studio to hypnotize her and destroy her while her camisole straps are down. All to paint her. Yeah, I know that this doesn't have Lugosi's iconic central performance as the vampire, but this movie gets up and moves around a fair amount more. And on a technical level, it's much more accomplished. It has some really nifty and exciting scenes. I especially like when she is performing that ritual to dispose of Dracula's body with her incantations and the fire. Edward Van Sloan is back, like you mentioned, that I love. He is one of my absolute favorites from this time period. For the prime era of universal horror, Edward Van Sloan and Dwight Fry rate just below Karloff and Lugosi for me. And I mean just barely. I also love Dr. Garth's assistant prank calling him. That was a real <laughs> highlight for me. She's got moxie. <laughs> she does. Well, next we have our movie night finale. We only did three this year because for the final Saturday of the month, we were on the road. We were vacationing. So our big ending here is Cold Prey from 2006, the finale of our Halloween movie nights. Now, How Sue was our most well-attended and I think the favorite of this year's bunch. And I have two questions with Cold Prey. How do you feel ultimately about achieving your programming goal overall? Did you put that across the way you wanted to? And then why end on this note? Because this is easily the most grim of the bunch. And yet, she's clearly triumphant in the end, even though there is a sequel where she has to triumph yet again. But she does so. I just like so much that she is clearly the most capable person in her group. She takes charge from the very beginning, seems to know what to do in every situation. And not in a Mary Sue kind of way. She doesn't just miraculously have this knowledge. This knowledge and competency seems earned when you watch her work. It does. It seems to come from some experience that she has and just a general capability that I feel is often lacking in other people. I think ultimately, this is the kind of person, the kind of character I was looking for when I thought of this series. And you found this through a list, so I'm so glad. And I do recommend part two. It's kind of like Halloween part two in that it takes place immediately after the end of part one. Because she has to double down on her agility and inner strength. Mm -hmm. And in the hospital. 
and it is straight up final. She says so. Yeah, just like you, I really like how capable she is. With respect to just that one element, I think I like it even more than the Ripley character in Alien, because in Cold Prey, she never has to have that moment of proving to everyone that even though she's a woman, she can handle it. We don't have to go through that, which I appreciate. It's understood from the first frame that she is in the lead here. So speaking of sequels, it's back to you. Yes, my next choice on the list is Son of Frankenstein from 1939. So we've got Dracula's Daughter and Son of Frankenstein back-to-back, which I thought was kind of fun. And it's directed by Roland V. Lee and stars Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, Basil Rathbone, Lionel Atwill, and Josephine Hutchinson. It's about the son of Dr. Frankenstein, who returns to the old homestead to rehabilitate the family's reputation, but can't quite resist the lure of his destiny. I put this one on the list because of all the Universal sequels, with the exception of the one at the end of our list, this one to me is just the most fun. There's a really good reason that this is the basis for a lot of the humor in young Frankenstein. Some of it barely exaggerated. And... A lot of people may not realize that there were sequels to some of these films. Some better than others. In the case of The Mummy, for instance, those really get into diminishing returns quickly. But the Frankenstein franchise, it really held up for the most part for me. You've got the first Frankenstein and then the original Mummy, for instance, that they really strike the right balance, I feel like, of action and thoughtfulness. Dracula was slow, but those two were just right. And as it often is with sequels... Things just keep ramping up. I noticed this time all the interesting angles and slopes and triangles Mm. and diagonals. And the great sets and lighting and composition, there's that semi-burnt-out lab that comes to life with sulfur and the bowels below it. And Lionel Atwell is hilarious in this. Yeah, Son of Frankenstein is to Frankenstein as Aliens is to Alien. They just keep going bigger Looking at it as apples and oranges, I think, is the way to do it. It's a super fun time. The monster has a new outfit, no more ill-fitting suit. This new fur vest makes him look like he just joined the Velvet Underground. (laughs) There's a sequence where Rathbone essentially gives the monster a full physical workup that has some nifty mad scientist equipment in it. I really think of Igor and the monster as Gibson and Woody together. (laughs) Our dogs. Our dogs rampaging the countryside. (laughs) And then there's a swashbuckling adventure ending that I feel like presages the finale of Terminator 2 all the way 50 years into the future. It really is state-of-the-art for 1939. And by the way, check out the wiki entries on Josephine Hutchinson and Basil Rathbone. They were connected to the same woman, Ava Legallien, and it is a pretty interesting story. Next, we have our regular episode for Let's Scare Jessica to Death from 1971. If you would like to hear what we thought about that in great detail, you can hear us discuss it at length in episode 115. What do you have next? Now, if there was ever a person born to play a carny, it's Lon Chaney Jr. (laughs) I think the word palooka was invented for him, and he stars in Man-Made Monster from 1941. Directed by George Wagner, also with Lionel Atwell again, Anne Nagel, Samuel S. Hines, and Frank Albertson, the last two being It's a Wonderful Life grads. Lionel Atwell is villaining it up here as the mad scientist who turns a man into an electrically controlled monster to do his bidding. Okay, I was doing some serious Wikipedia deep diving here. Look up Anne Nagel, who was part of an odd triangle of suicides. I'm not going to tell you more about it. 
But there are also a lot of things to like here. The cool electrical machinery and gadgets. There's an awesome dog who ends up being a great detective. And all of these experiments themselves. So I don't know why dosing a person with electricity makes them into an automaton, but it does. Now, this was made the exact same year as The Wolfman, and I'm thinking about how fine a line it is between becoming a beloved classic and a footnote. The plot to this begins similarly to Unbreakable, but this has no Shyamalan twist at the end. And for as many times as he ends up on our list this year, I'm just not the biggest Lon Chaney Jr. fan. He's really represented in the list, but I'm with you. Let's just say Lenny in Of Mice and Men was not a role that was a big stretch for him. And I don't want to speak ill of someone, though, who is so clearly a dog person. And he's not alone in this film. I feel like everyone except Lionel Atwill got their script yesterday. (laughs) But you're right. There is some nice mad scientist equipment in this one. It would have been so much fun to be the set decorator in so many of these films. And I think one neat element that sets this apart from just the usual scientists playing God themes that we're dealing with here, on Cheney's part, it also plays like an addiction parable as well. Because every time he receives this treatment, it gives him a little boost, but then he eventually goes into a kind of withdrawal and he just needs more and more and more. Otherwise, though, it follows a well-established formula that we see repeatedly in this era. You've got your monster slash villain, You've got juvenile leads in a romantic entanglement and then dubious comic relief. You're about to kick it into the stratosphere of cool set design with our next one. Yeah, this was a big surprise too. This was The Devil Commands from 1941 and that's directed by Edward Dimitrik and starring Boris Karloff and Anne Revere. It's about a grief-stricken scientist who becomes obsessed with communicating with his recently deceased wife via his experiments using brainwaves and a phony medium as a human antenna. We're beginning to enter the decline, I think, of the first golden age of horror, and we're getting some of these low-budget knockoffs that, while we still love them, are not of the same quality or impact of some of the bigger titles. This was a real standout for me, though. Absolutely. I love this premise of trying to pierce the veil with enough signals to send and receive, and there's a warning in the beginning by a fellow scientist about what might be let through. So I was kind of half expecting an evil presence to come through, especially with the title of the film. But more than anything, Anne Revere really stands out as this fraudulent medium. By the way, she was an active member of the Communist Party, and she pled the fifth and refused to testify before the House Un-American Activities, and she did not appear again on film for the next 20 years after that. And then there's Karloff as a benign scientist, and I really identified with this theme of this deep tragedy of loss. He conveys that he's a loving family man who's just completely undone. Yeah, this has to be, I think, my favorite first time watch on this year's list. It starts with a storm-tossed coastline, a spooky voiceover, another miniature that I love. It's one of the more nuanced treatments of this idea that there are some things that aren't the province of men, that there is a wall beyond which science should not go. And a lot of that can really be chalked up to the presence of Boris Karloff. He imbues even some of these B pictures with such a gentleness and a dignity and credibility that you don't get in a lot of their counterparts. You combine that with a fun sequence where he debunks this mercenary medium and then she becomes his right hand. You've got a little grave robbing, a seance 
populated exclusively by corpses and more first-rate lab equipment, and you have a surprisingly effective little chiller and a great fun discovery. What do you have next? I've got a big one, and that's The Wolfman from 1941, directed by George Wagner, with Claude Rains, Warren William, Lon Chaney Jr., Evelyn Ankers, Patrick Knowles, and Bela Lugosi and Maria Uspenskaya, written by the great Kurt Siodmak. Now, this is one that I think I have watched the most. I would say that this is probably my favorite that is so interesting to me because there's so much that's unappealing about this character. <laughs> I think that it's the saddest, and it's not the same quest for power, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's about a man returning to his homeland who is bitten by a werewolf and becomes one. Back to the font again. I like that they go for the full hairy font in this. It's appropriate, too, because Jack Pierce finally got to use the full-face werewolf makeup that he wanted to use in Werewolf of London, so we go from slightly furry to completely furry font. It's got Patrick Knowles, who I never really liked for some reason, and Warren William, who I did, but he did not live long after this, so we don't have the same legacy. And we've got Claude Rains, who is in my top ten actors of the period, hands down, as the most improbable father. So if you look at Lon Chaney Jr. and you look at Claude Rains, who was the mother? Broderick Crawford? <laughs> and I think Evelyn Ankers definitely conveys that she is completely uncomfortable around him. I think she's always trying to get away from him. Mm. I, I agree with what I think you mean in that Evelyn Ankers, the actress, yes. shows that, where the character is not supposed to be showing that necessarily. Because the old befuddled Lummox himself is back, and this time he is a sort of prodigal son slash peeping Tom. This is likely my least favorite of the classic Universal Pantheon, just because we are being asked continually to sympathize with such a big dumb creep. It still has things I love. The atmosphere of the gypsy camp is great. Bela Lugosi plays it as properly afflicted. And I think that's where the sadness comes in. Bela's affliction is terrible. It is. And there's a level of sadness that I think comes in this ending that redeems it somewhat for me. My favorite thing about it is how dark the subtext of the finale is. I'm Claude Rains. I am killing the son that I resent to even the score for my good son being taken from me. And not just killing, beating to death. Right. I am not going to suffer being saddled with this lumbering dolt, constantly thinking of what could have been. It's kind of a variation on the more sinister themes that we found in The Babadook and in our next regular episode after this, The Heiress, strangely enough. Well, speaking of a family curse, you've got the next one. Yes, this is The Undying Monster from 1942, the very next year, directed by Lantern favorite John Brom and starring James Ellison. Heather Angel, John Howard, and Heather Thatcher. It's about an aristocratic family who are threatened by a legendary creature whenever they venture out on frosty evenings. This is my favorite werewolf movie from the classic period. And a lot of that is because of John Brom. He was a master at providing atmosphere on a budget. It has an immense cursed house that comes with its own crypt. It has a great dog. There's even a on a night just like tonight bit in the opening. It has a bit of werewolf lore poetry. It doesn't really do anything new for the genre, 
but I think it does all of the genre things better than anyone else has done. We get to trade out Cheney's sex pest for Heather Angel being an almost proto-action figure. She is fearless. At the first hint of danger, she grabs a pistol, commandeers a carriage, and rushes straight out to meet it. She's awesome. There's also great lantern usage in it. 10 out of 10 for that. There's nothing to be disappointed by in this film. From the beginning, there's that doom that's conveyed without music, but with words. And by the way, this was co-written by a woman, and that was Lily Hayward, and she wrote for more than 70 films and TV shows. The camera is constantly moving, and by the way, that's Lucian Ballard, who also did The Lodger, A Kiss Before Dying, and The Getaway. And there's no romantic ending, which I appreciate, even though it does feel like possibly some of this was cut, because at the end, we never really see Helga again. But you found this interesting tidbit, I think, about how people did see more of Heather Thatcher. She had an early career as apparently a very risque dancer with the most scandalous costume at the time. All right. Well, that was my choice there. What do you have next? We're going to have another of my favorites, and that's George Zuko. And that is in The Mad Ghoul from 1943, directed by James Hogan with David Bruce, Evelyn Ankers, George Zuko, as I mentioned, Robert Armstrong, all the way from King Kong, and Turhan Bey. Zuko is a chemistry professor who experiments with an ancient gas on a medical student, turning this kid into a would-be murdering ghoul. Also, funnily enough, this was co-written by a woman again. This was Brenda Weisberg, and she was an active screenwriter from the 30s through the 50s. She did The Mummy's Ghost, as well as writing for Rusty the Dog. That Mummy's Ghost, that's when we're starting to see the downslope of these things. Not to besmirch her talents, but... It's true. It's the curse of the ghost of the hand of the mummy. It's true. And we had an uncredited Charles McGraw back in The Undying Monster, Mm. and he shows up again here. I adore George Zuko, and he is really selling it in this movie. By the way, where are the healing scientists? His protege, on the other hand, I think turns into zombie Barry Nelson, then zombie (laughs) Seth Green, then zombie Jason Fleming. It's a little funny. But I do like Robert Armstrong playing a canny reporter here, and he has this trick to nab the ghoul, which goes horribly awry for him, which we don't often see. Yeah, this was another pleasant surprise from one of these more low-budget entries. And again, to me, that's all up to the lead. George Zuko is so underrated in terms of his contribution to genre films. He's also in one of our favorite old dark house movies, The Black Raven, which I don't think gets enough attention that was made the same year as this. It occurred to me this time, seeing Vera West's name in the credits, just how many times in this golden age we see a gowns by credit. Even these lesser efforts from the 40s are classy affairs compared to what we have these days. We also had our first appearance of an actual magic lantern projector, which obviously makes it near and dear to our hearts. And like you said, with the reporter, this one caught my attention because this is the first instance that we have on our list. And one of what are probably just a very few instances of this where the comic relief gets murdered. I don't recall having seen that very often at all, at least prior to the 1980s. It's typically a line they didn't cross in this period. So this one is really a solid B programmer. If they rounded out the bill on a Saturday matinee, you would have a really good time with this as your warm-up. And then you went and chose the (laughs) next one. 
Yeah, this one was the dud of the bunch, unfortunately. The only real bum note. Yeah, it's The Lady and the Monster from 1944, and that's directed by George Sherman and starring Vera Ralston, Richard Arlen again from Island of Lost Souls, and then Eric von Stroheim. It's also the first of three film adaptations of Kurt Siodmak's novel, Donovan's Brain. There's also, I didn't know if you know this or not, a version with Orson Welles they did of this for your favorite radio show, Suspense. Oh, I've listened to it. It's great. Listen to that. Don't watch this. <laughs> it's about a scientist who keeps the brain of a dead businessman slash criminal alive, and it begins to exert its evil influence on his assistant. This was the first time that I really felt with what we've chosen that we are getting into the diminishing returns. We've seen these ideas done better in numerous ways already. And it's a shame because the novel can be adapted into something interesting. All the other adaptations show that. These pieces just did not come together, even though I was really excited for Von Stroheim. And I think we can really pin it on one thing. This short-lived attempt to make Vera Ralston into a star was misguided, to put it diplomatically. She is beyond terrible. And also, I hate to say it, but Eric von Stroheim ain't great either. And then you've got Richard Arlen wandering around, spending the second half of the film looking for his mark so they can essentially shine a flashlight under his chin, which is the effect it seemed they were going for. Well, he had to growl at the same time. I will stick with the radio version. I think that's good advice. But we bounced back for our next one that you chose. We did. I think we got surprised by how much we liked this. And that was Strange Confession from 1945, directed by John Hoffman, with Lon Chaney Jr. again, Brenda Joyce, and J. Carol Nash. A scientist is working on a cure for influenza, but he is victimized by his unscrupulous boss and things go terribly awry. This was an inner sanctum movie, and I haven't seen any of the other in the set that we have of them. Based on this, though, I would assume you are inspired to. I think so. We've got Lon Chaney Jr. again, this time with a mustache. And we also have, finally, a healing scientist. And he states very clearly, he is working for mankind. This one takes part at least a bit around Christmas, and he's getting exploited like Bob Cratchit by his Scrooge boss, the pomaded J. Carol Nash. But it's so much more than that because we're getting into almost third-man territory with bad drugs, labor exploitation, and a wife who is walking a very fine line of almost betraying herself. I don't really want to tell you where this one goes, even though we do say often that we will give spoilers. But I think you should see this one unfold. Yeah, I like this one a lot more than I thought I might going into it. I like the Inner Sanctum radio show almost as much as Suspense. It's right up there. My top three would be Suspense, Lights Out, and then Inner Sanctum right after that. And of the Lon Chaney Jr. appearances on our list, this one is far and away tops for me. It's almost more film noir than horror. This grisly method by which our protagonist dispatches the villain is really the only thing that pushes it over the line into horror territory. And it's got this nifty little flashback structure that we would see echoed later in films like The Killers and DOA. Like you mentioned, we've got our first J. Carroll Nash appearance, and then we've also got a young Lloyd Bridges rounding out the cast, which is kind of fun to see him in that role. He gets to play with a monkey a lot. <laughs> I'm assuming that echoes real life, too. And we're getting towards the end of the list, and I love everything that comes after, too. Well, my penultimate choice here is House of Horrors from 1946, and that's directed by Gene Yarborough and starring the inimitable Rondo Hatton, 
along with Martin Kozlik and Virginia Gray. It's about a sinister sculptor who rescues a killer from drowning and then manipulates him into dispatching a series of art critics. By the way, how many art critics can this town's newspaper <laughs> support? A There's a billion of them. This insane artist angle, I think, is a really nice change of pace for us after all of the mad scientists that we've been encountering. Ultimately, though, this is all about Rondo Hatton. He is such an interesting case, I think. He suffered from acromegaly, and his health was degenerating rapidly as this was being made. It was filmed in 1945, and then released shortly after he died in the beginning of 1946. I didn't plan it this way, again, just like all of these other coincidences, but it's our third film from the end, and it bookends with our third film from the top, Freaks, in that this is definitely exploitation territory that we're talking about. Hatton isn't treated as sensitively as those characters or given as much agency, but he did come to Hollywood to take advantage of his unique appearance. There was certainly no one else like him in the golden age of horror. I like that the sculptor, Martin Kozlak, doesn't treat him as a creature. He's really a muse in that sense and a friend. And I like that moment of complicity when he turns from being so consumed by his art to the idea of maybe I can use this person for my own ends, even though he's not pulling the strings in that same sense. And also, by the way, Martin Kozlik was on the Gestapo list of undesirables, and he also reportedly hated Lon Chaney Jr. Well, then I guess I will cut him a little slack in this case, <laughs> because you're right. Even though he treats him as a partner almost in this, literally everyone else who encounters Rondo Hatton first screams at his appearance. Just looking at him, he's done nothing, and they go crazy. Which is a shame, because I think, for example, this sculpture that's made of him, when it's really in this raw state before it gets smoothed out and refined, it is a powerful and beautiful piece of art, I think. It's so neat. And I don't really understand in general why he is thought to be mad. I think it's mostly because he's modern. He seems to have a vision that others don't. Well, he certainly had a muse unlike anyone else. What about your final choice here? We've got The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946, directed by Robert Flory, again written by Kurt Siodmak, with Robert Alda, Andrea King, and Peter Lorre. Lori gets third billing in this. Crazy. In turn-of-the-century Italy, a one-handed, wheelchair-bound pianist with a belief in the occult is murdered. And we've got J. Carol Nash appearing again. And I love that this one-handed pianist seems to be taking the nurse's life force. Is it the ring making him do it? I'm not sure. My favorite effect here is when you see the hand from underneath you see that they've taken the time to put bones in there. And I love Peter Lorre's work with the hand. Now, I've seen this before, but I still expect at the end that it will be revealed that Julie, the nurse, is actually the person who murdered the pianist in order to get his money. This is a theme with you. It is. Doesn't that make more sense, though? Because I think she was holding something back the whole time. I can see it going that way, for sure. But it doesn't obviously work out like that. I guess it does also make sense with Lori getting third billing because the romance is actually more front and center with this one. And it's not actually annoying comic relief for once. Of the evil hand-oriented Lori films, I prefer Mad Love, but this one definitely still has some things to recommend it. 
you already mentioned, J. Carol Nash is back, and that's as a good guy this time. There's a really fun, completely ridiculous Scooby-Doo denouement to this that explains some of the supernatural goings-on. And any time that Peter Lorre is in the grip of homicidal hallucinations, you have the makings of a good time. So how about the big finale? What do we end with? We close this thing out with Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948, and that's directed by Charles Barton and starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, but not just them. You have horror royalty here, with Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. reprising their roles as Dracula and the Wolfman, respectively. It's kind of a disappointment that you have Glenn Strange filling Karloff's shoes as Frankenstein's monster, although they would team up with Karloff the next year to make another one of these. And even Vincent Price sneaks in a little cameo right at the end. The story is that there's a lovely mad scientist that needs Lou's brain for Frankenstein's monster and wacky (laughs) hijinks ensue. It's so fun. It is great. I wanted to end with something fun, and this seemed so perfectly fitting. This series of horror comedies that they made are kind of the last gasp for the Universal Monster pantheon as we knew them, and I especially like it because Lou Costello really gets a chance to shine in this one. This one is absolutely for the kid in me. All my favorite things from when I was six or seven years old, all in one place. By the way, you send me. (laughs) The comedy is so funny in this. I absolutely adore it. Thank you for also bringing this one to me. I think I've now seen it maybe three or four times. But a great way to end the series on a high note. Well, with that, what were your highlights or your favorites? Were you happy with your choices overall? I definitely was. It's great that there were only a couple that were just so-so and one that was really not great, but it was still fun viewing. I liked being surprised. I liked our discoveries like Supernatural. And I love seeing those themes show themselves. Yeah, I'm with you with the discovery thing. Supernatural, The Mad Ghoul, The Devil Commands, these are definitely films that I will come back to that will get added to my Coloween comfort food rotation, basically. And one thing that we didn't talk about, but that seemed to go throughout so many of these choices, this theme of power, it's really intriguing how many times we ran into it. When I think of monsters in a contemporary setting, I think of chance encounters with evil forces, wrong time, wrong place. But so many of these early monsters and villains, they were all about control, dominion over the laws of nature, their fellow man. It's such a primal and fundamental drive that so many of them seem to be commenting on that I feel like it would have been remiss to not bring it up. And that brings us to the end of episode 116. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. There are a couple of fun Halloween choices up over there right now, and for patrons at all levels, for the past couple of years, I've been reading spooky tales by Lantern Light that are available to everyone as a token of our appreciation. This year was The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows. Please stop by 25th Frame Media to check out what all of our cinema-loving friends are doing. As October closes out, we wanted to take a moment to shine a spotlight on our newest addition to the roster, and that is the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast. 
It's a monthly podcast hosted by our friend Josh Hornbeck, and it's dedicated to the Criterion Collections streaming service, the Criterion Channel. And on his show, you'll find stats, tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your viewing, overviews of the individual films and programming blocks that are entering and leaving the channel. And right now you can head over there and get your fill of discussion about art house horror while the spooky season is still upon us. It is highly recommended. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Mike Scharf, Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films podcast, Drew Tavendale and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Tim Lego, James Stobie, Andy Wolverton, Keith Rich, John Laubinger over at Film Baby Film, and Stan Johnston. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so that we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, The 25th Frame, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thank you to the nice anonymous person that just left us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.